Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coral reefs are a microcosm of our planet. Extraordinarily diverse, deeply interconnected, and full of wonders. But corals across the planet are in the middle of an unprecedented die-off beset by warming oceans, pollution, damage by humans, and a devastating pandemic. Julie Burwell tells a fellow love with coral reefs as a marine biology student, entranced by their beauty and complexity, and alarmed by their peril, she traveled the world to discover how to prevent their loss. And she'll join us today to talk about her new book, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. Julie Burwell received her Ph.D. in ocean science from University of Southern California. She's the author of Spineless. It's about jellyfish. And a science uh, a textbook and writer and editor, she's written uh, for a number of publications, including New York Times, Nature, National Geographic, and Slate. Julie Burwald, uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tom. I'm so thrilled to be here. Uh, am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, very good. Um, yeah. I want to start with a bit about you. Um, you say on your website, marine invertebrates stole my heart on my first snorkel <laughs> in the Red Sea during college. Tell me about that. <laughs> it's true. I, I mean, um, you know, I grew up in Missouri in St. Louis. And I mean, I think our family took a few vacations to beach when I was growing up. But, you know, I was really landlocked as a kid. And um, I took this, I went on the study abroad program to Israel my junior year of college. And I was sort of miserable on the program. <laughs> I, I just wasn't fitting in and and kind of feeling sad and sorry for myself. And I just signed up for this marine ecology course. Like there was a sign on the side of a building and it said marine ecology course one week over winter break. And I thought, well, I might as well do that. I'm kind of miserable where I am. And um, they put us on a bus and drove us through the desert and we ended up at the Red Sea and they, in a very kind of Israeli, they're sort of abrupt and, and gruff a little bit. And they threw a mask and a snorkel at us and said, go see. And I like put my head in the water. And it was, I mean, I, you know, it's a little trite, but it was kind of like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where suddenly the world is in color. And I thought, how does all this live on the same planet as me? And I just never knew it before. And, I mean, it was this bustling, cra- amazing city with fish swimming everywhere and shrimp and, and snails and things I'd never seen before and all these shapes and colors and and filigrees and just this world that, you know, we share the planet with. And I I was had not ever realized it. And, and to experience that just it sort of changes you in this way that's really, really important, I think, or it was for me. Mm. And, um, yeah, they stole my heart. I fell in love. <laughs> in fact, you got <laughs> so, you got your Ph.D. in ocean science. I did, right. I was, you know, as an undergraduate, I was, um, well, I, I, I had this incredible roommate in college who was an incredible writer, and she was so intimidating, I thought, I'll never – I can never write another word in my life. Like she was such an incredible writer. <laughs> I decided to be a math major. And, um, and so I, I had no um, biology background after I left college. Um, so I had to do a bunch of internships at Marine Lab to sort of, you know, build up my resume um, to get myself into grad school for marine biology. But it, it did do it eventually. And but I studied um, satellite imagery of the ocean, which was kind of mathematical, actually. So that's kind of why I got accepted. 
Um, but I wasn't, I didn't have the opportunity to study coral when I was a scientist. Uh, so when I, when I decided to write this book, it really was diving back into this world that I, I always loved, but I really hadn't studied as a scientist. Um, so it was, I hope I expressed some of the sense of wonder I had at, at discovering this world from a scientific view as I read the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question about you personally. You, you, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, your about page on your website, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. by the way, is julieburwell.com. Um, you, uh, well, and then you met your husband, and uh, off you went to Austin, Texas, which is not yeah. next to the ocean, right? But do you, but you end up writing about uh, about the ocean and and uh, and related topics. Uh, you say your your kids can tell when you've uh, when you're working on a story about the ocean. The, you get the stare. They, they <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, when my husband and I, um, you know, decided to get married and moved to Austin, he was like, I promise you, there'll be an ocean there again in a few million years. We just have to wait. <laughs> so, so that was his uh, selling point, which I, it wasn't so great, actually. But the truth is, I wonder a lot about the fact that I am, you know, again, landlocked, that maybe it gives me sort of the space to think about the ocean in a way that, um, yeah, I mean, maybe there's something about being distant that allows me to really go internal and think about what the ocean means. And I do get this thing called the stare where I'm, my brain is just kind of spinning on, on something I've read or something I'm trying to write and explain. And my kids will say, you know, should we set the table? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, without really paying attention to what they're saying. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, it's, it's got this nickname, the stare. Mm. Um, where I'm looking right at them, but I'm definitely not thinking about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So you talk about the sense of wonder. Uh, I wonder, uh, maybe before we get to that, I want to have you talk about that, but uh, the subtitle of the book is Building a Future for Coral Reefs. Um, I think we, you know, we have a vague understanding, a lot of us, but uh, maybe give us an overview. Why should we care about uh, coral reefs? What, uh, what? Tell us a bit about them, what they do. Yeah, so the cool thing about coral, which isn't maybe immediately obvious when you look at a coral reef or even the front of my book, which looks like a bouquet, is that um, corals are animals. So they are um, just, you know, they're very closely related to a sea anemone or a jellyfish. Um, And they have, just like we do, you know, they have a nervous system, they have um, a digestive system, they have a reproductive system, they, um, they respond to their environment, by, they can pay attention to, to light, they can smell chemicals in the water, they have a microbiome like we do in our guts that help keep them healthy. So, you know, they're animals. Um, but they live, an individual is sort of what's called a polyp, and that's really like a very small sea anemone. And they live in colonies. Um, so those polyps are very small. They're kind of like pencil, pencil eraser size. But they're networked together through their digestive systems and their nervous systems. So if one side of a colony senses a predator, it can send a signal to the other side of the colony. If one, some member, some polyps are lucky enough to capture some plankton to eat, they can share that nutrition with other members of the colony. And so there are these collectives. And then the colonies 
together um, form reefs. When you have a whole bunch of colonies together, they form a coral reef. And those coral reefs can be made up of, you know, depending where you are in the world, like in the Indo-Pacific, there can be hundreds of species of coral living together on a reef, and they each grow, you know, some of them grow kind of like trees with lots of branches, and some of them grow kind of these flat, more table-y sort of forms, or some of them form like mounds that look like brains. <laughs> and so they can form all these different shapes, and that acts as habitat for so many marine animals. Um, there are... The, the coral reefs of the world live, take up maybe less than half a percent of the ocean's area, but they are home to a quarter of all marine species. So somewhere around maybe a quarter million species live on coral reefs at some point in their, in their life. So they're disproportionately important to the ocean. And in the ocean, a lot of animals have larval stages. So that would be like caterpillar. You can think about like caterpillars look really different from butterflies. The butterflies, the adult form, but the caterpillars, the larval form. And in the ocean, most animals, the majority of animals have larval forms, and a lot of those larval forms live on coral reefs. And so this, this really young part of the animal's life cycle, that's super important. You don't get to an adult if you don't go through the larval form. They live on coral reefs. So they're really, really, really important, disproportionately important. And then because so many animals live on coral reefs, up here on land, um, we depend on those reefs for, you know, as the, as the nursery grounds for a lot of the protein that we eat. And it's estimated that between a half billion and a billion people depend on coral reefs for their primary source of protein. And, and so it's not just um, an ecosystem issue or a marine issue. It actually rolls up here to us on land. And then there's one more really important piece, which is that a healthy coral reef is the best defense against storms. Um, coral reefs can absorb 97% of the energy of a storm that's coming on land. So at, in a time when our planet's getting warmer and storms are getting more intense, those healthy reefs can really be great protection for us here on land. And, like, for example, during, during Hurricane Dorian, which hit um, for, uh, the Bahamas, a few years ago, on the southern part of the island, where the storm came barreling towards land, they actually have a pretty healthy coral reef, and the damage there was really minimal compared to other parts of the island where the reef had been degraded. So there's, there's lots of reasons for us to think about the health of coral reefs. I want to just follow up on that. Uh, so um, the, the, I guess the reefs absorb energy from the storm? Is that the, the benefit? That's right. They Because... You know, they're not like a lot of times when we build um, jetties and barriers in the ocean, they're, they're sort of, um, we, you know, we use cement and it, it's, not, it's not very porous. And the way the reef is formed, it's full of nooks and crannies and places for the water energy to go and that slows it down. And so by the time the storm comes on land, it's lost a lot of its energy. And um, yeah, it's a really important, um, it's a really important reason for us to care about coral reefs. And in fact, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but it seems like a nice segue. Um, coral reefs are, are valued at maybe 2 to $10 trillion per year in these sort of 
um, ecosystem services, they're called. So services that healthy ecosystems provide to us um, as humans. And the value of coral reefs has become so noticeable to people that now there's efforts to insure coral reefs. So in um, the Yucatan, in near Cancun, and in Belize and Honduras, they are taking out insurance policies on their reefs to because the value is quantifiable. And insurance companies are willing to say, yeah, um, a healthy reef is a benefit, such a benefit to stopping the storm damage that we will give you an insurance policy for your reef. And... Um, the first insurance policy payout was in 2019, and it was about $800,000 for uh, the U- for uh, Quintana U near Cancun, Quintana Roo near Cancun, and the money was used to pay divers to go immediately out onto the reef and secure coral that had been broken back in place, um, so that it wouldn't continue to roll around on the reef and continue destroying whatever coral was still healthy. And it was seen as such a successful project that now the idea is expanding, like I said, to Belize, it's possible to Galapagos, and now they're looking at places in the um, Pacific Ocean as well. Before we go uh, on, I have a very basic question. I hope I'm not the only one that asked this question. Um, so you described corals as a little like you know, polyps, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, um, and then we're talking about coral reefs. So the, the polyps produce these reefs, and then they, they, they oh. live on the reef? Is that, that what happens? Yeah, so I thank you for, making, for, for bringing me back to, the, <laughs> um, to this question, because it's really important. So coral, like I said, they're animals, and, and sort of the unit of a coral is a polyp. But inside of that polyp, um, are what it's sort of the coral, it's definitely the coral superpower, is this algae, this teeny little single-celled algae. And they're beautiful. They look like little pieces of round amber when you look at them under a microscope. And they are, um, just like all algae, they, they photosynthesize in order to get their energy. So they take light from the sun and um, water and carbon dioxide, and they mix that together and um, create sugar. And just like all trees and plants do. And that, and that sugar, these algae feed 90% of the sugar that they make to the coral animal. So it's this major um, source of nutrition is this sugar that the algae make. And they make so much of it that the coral animal itself is able to take calcium and carbonate in the seawater and create limestone. And that limestone becomes the skeleton, its skeleton, and the skeleton all um, built on top of each other become the coral reef. So it's this incredible symbiosis between the coral and the algae that is so like intimate and connected that really truly provides the the fuel to build the limestone reefs of the world. And um, and it's it's it's. It's just an an unbelievable connection. And what's even more kind of amazing about it is coral reefs live in um, tropical parts of the world, and they have to live near the surface because there has to be enough sunlight for the coral to support the algae that live in their tissues. 
So the, the coral live in places where the day lengths are the longest, which is the tropical parts of the world. And they live really shallow in order to be closer to the surface where there's the most sunlight. And that's why the reefs are mostly surrounding tropical islands. Oh, well, they're intact. some of them live out um, in the middle of the oceans on, like, sea mountains and stuff. But most coral reefs live close to shore because it's shallow and, and in this belt of the tropics around our planet. And um, the problem for the coral and the coral reefs of our world is that as our planet warms, um, it's, it's, and this is kind of the big unknown, but the coral and the algal symbiosis is very, very close to its thermal tolerance. So when the water warms by a degree or two for like, say, a month or a few weeks, um, and we still don't know exactly why, but the algae leaves the coral. And when it leaves the coral, it takes the color with it because the algae, like I said, they're kind of this golden or greenish color. Um, and so then the algae looks, I mean, the coral, the remaining coral is clear. And what you can see is straight through to its, its limestone skeleton. So it looks bright white. But when the algae leaves, it also takes that source of nutrition. It takes all that sugar with it. And so the coral is suddenly on starvation rations. And um, if the water doesn't cool down, the coral eventually dies. And so that's called a bleaching. And you, pro you might have read about mass bleaching, which never really took place on our planet before the 1980s. Um, and then they, they sort of started, the first one was around 1983, and then there was one in the 90s, and then 2010 and 11. And then basically since about 20. Mm, since about 2016, we've been in a constant state of mass bleaching at some places around our planet. And so this is really why um, I wrote the book, was because this is such an urgent time for coral reefs. Um, these mass bleachings can be really devastating to this, like I said, this, this, outsized, this ecosystem with outsized importance in our ocean. Let's take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to get uh, more on this uh, coral bleaching. The, and there are other problems, as I understand it, uh, besides uh, global warming as well for for corals, right? Um, That's um, but uh, and and but there are solutions. There there's a lot of scientists out there uh, working hard with on solutions. Uh, some of them just. Uh, uh, just really, really fascinating. We'll get to all of that as we talk with Julie Burwald. She's author, most recently, of Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs, and we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about the uh, fascinating story of coral. Um, 1%, less than 1% um, of the oceans is, uh, is taken up by coral, but... Uh, they provide 25% uh, of, uh, I guess, nutrients for many other species. Uh, very important. And uh, there's a new book out, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. Julie Burwald is uh, the author, uh, author of previously of Spineless, about uh, jellyfish. Um, so, Julie Burwald... I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, uh, some of the problems. Uh, we talked about uh, warming, and you, you said the, this amazing symbiotic relationship between algae and coral uh, is, is what produces uh, a lot of this benefit. Uh, 
but if if the ocean temperature rises, what one or two degrees, it doesn't take much. Then the algae leave, um, and then that uh, that produces uh, bleaching because the algae provide the color, right? And so, and at that point, um, I guess coral reefs can die, and uh, that's been happening, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yes, that's exactly correct. The coral reefs probably about half they. Said that about half the coral reefs have suffered from, or have died. Um, the probably there's no coral reef left in the world that hasn't experienced a bleaching. So yeah, it's really really significant, and um, and and we're sort of watching um, this unfold up here on land with without kind of realizing just how important it is. There's some places where things are really, really bad. In the Florida Keys, it's estimated that only 2% of the hard cover that used to be there still exists. Um, but it's in the Indo-Pacific, this part of the world called the Coral Triangle, which sort of exists between Indonesia, the Philippines, and Papua New Guinea, there's places where the coral cover is still really extensive. And um, and so it's it's hard in a way to tell this story um, because I don't want to say like all is lost already that the corals are dead and we should just give up and forget about it because there's even though they only take up less than a percent of the ocean's area that's still a huge area and what's pretty amazing is that even when there is a mass bleaching there are always survivors. The, the scientists will go out on a reef and it will be, it'll be bone white everywhere, except there'll be like these few coral heads that are somehow survivors. So there's a lot of work look, looking at the genetics of those survivors and saying like, what is going on there? Why could they survive? Why are the algae um, not leaving them when the water warms? And the answers to those questions are still, that's like an ongoing story. We're not entirely sure, but a few things have been learned. Um, the first is that the survive, this ability to survive a warming, uh, an ocean warming is inheritable. So the offspring from those corals that uh, do survive mass, mass bleaching, they have a better chance of surviving mass bleachings as well. Um, what hasn't been <laughs> able to be found is like a gene that is like, oh, this is the gene for thermotolerance. This is the gene that's going to let coral survive. And if we can somehow spread this through the population of coral, the symbiosis will be able to handle a warmer world. So that doesn't look to be the case. Um, what it looks like is that there's something that's spread throughout the genome. Like it's, it's, it's a compl more complex characteristic that allows these um, coral to and the coral to keep their algae when the water warms. So that's that's a couple things, and and definitely there's a ton of research going on into what allows coral, some coral to survive and some coral not to survive. And and what's great is that there's a lot of genetic diversity among corals. So it's not like um, some of these small populations, you know, that you hear about as like vaquita or these dolphin that are nearly extinct. The corals still have a ton of genetic diversity, and so that's just great, rich opportunities for coral to come up with solutions themselves 
to this warming planet. Um, whether they can do it fast enough is, is unclear. But there's one other little piece of information, which is kind of neat, that's happening out there. And that is that um, the coral can make associations with more than one type of algae. And the one that they've associated with for the last several million years is called cladocopium, which is a long word, but it's, it's just a name. Um, and so when the coral bleach, sometimes and then if the water cools down, they can reassociate with a different kind of algae called duristinium. So there's C and D. So it used to be C, now it's turning to D. And the Ds, they actually can survive with the coral for a little bit hotter, like a degree or two hotter temperatures. So, but they, um, they aren't as generous with the sugar. So whereas the C, Seas, the sea algae used to get gave the coral or give the coral about ninety percent of the sugar they make. The D's only give about sixty five percent. So in a way, it's kind of like um, the uh, the coral are these are like landlords, or and they used to have a tenant that paid them, you know, ninety dollars a month. Um, but the air conditioner broke, and so now the tenant that they can get can only pay them sixty five dollars a month, and. And they're willing to take that deal because the tenant is willing to be there, even with a broken air conditioner. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, this is a change we're starting to see around the reef. And will the coral be able to still lay down as much reef, as much calcium carbonate, if they're not getting as much fuel? So, like, will the landlord be able to make the repairs on the house if it doesn't have as much money coming in? Um those are questions that we don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I love the metaphor too, as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, before we get to some solutions, there's some surely innovative uh, things happening, very creative. I uh, want to articulate a few more of the problems. So we talked about global warming, uh, right? Uh, there are coral diseases, right, as well. And the, uh, yeah. fishing is a problem, <laughs> including, I, I, did, I, I hadn't remembered this happens, blast fishing. But maybe start with the coral diseases. Yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting. And as we've, and this is, so as we've become more agriculturalized, on land and started using fertilizers to um, farm with and building golf courses in tropical places, you know, more and more nutrients have been running into the ocean. And coral live in a place that's a very low nutrient part of the world. Um, So nutrients by nutrients, I really just mean fertilizer. Um, The tropical seas don't have very much fertilizer in the water, in the ocean water. Um, just because of the way the oceans work. And so part of the way that the coral, there's a theory that part of the way the coral got um, the algae to live inside their tissues was by offering it nutrition um, in the form of the coral's waste. (laughs) But as more of that waste from land, you know, from sewage and from fertilizer runoff ran into the oceans, it changed the the nutrition out there in the sea and the algae might kind of not need to make the deal with the coral. It can live just fine outside of the coral. So so that's one thing. You can have these wastes running into the water causing 
causing bleaching in the first place. But also, it seems like the coral doesn't like living in water where there's a ton of nutrition around, and um, and it gets sick. And so there's been these white band diseases, black band diseases. Lots of diseases have slept through the coral reefs, and a lot of times they're bacterial in nature. But there's a really bad one happening right now. It started in 2014 near the Port of Miami, and it's called Stony Coral Tissue Loss Disease, but the acronym is called Skittle D. And this one is, like, it's really bad. It's kind of like Ebola in that it melts the coral tissues, and it's swept down off the Florida Keys, and now it's jumped off into the Caribbean. It hasn't been found yet in the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean, which is cross our fingers, it doesn't go there. Um, but the bad news about it is that it affects about 22 species of coral. So most diseases are very species specific, and they only affect one or maybe two diseases, and, and that's a good thing because it limits its spread through a community or a coral reef. But this one affects 22 species. And once it attacks the coral, it will kill, it can kill a hundred year old coral in a matter of weeks. And so, um, yeah, if you're going diving in the Caribbean, please, please, please sterilize your dive equipment when you move from one place to another place um, to help slow the spread of disease. And, um, and there are scientists out there trying to, we don't know what the pathogen is right now. Um, there are a ton of zoos and aquariums that ha- are going out in front of the front, the infection front, and gathering healthy corals and putting them on land in kind of like Noah's arks um, and keeping them alive to wait till this infection spreads through, and then at least we'll have some genetic, um, you know, a genetic bank to hopefully replant the reef um, once it passes through. But this is this is a pretty terrifying disease. Mm. And then uh, blast fishing. Uh, Blast fishing is also uh, another thing that's a problem. Um, It's illegal, I will say that. Um, It was probably learned from the United States Geological Service doing doing some fish surveys in the early 1900s. Um, The mechanism is basically you take a bomb made out of a water bottle and some fertilizer and you throw it into the ocean, um, it, it causes an explosion, and that um, causes fish have these things called gas bladders, and it reverberates in their body. They get stunned and float to the surface, and you can easily collect a lot of fish that way, but it also destroys whatever reef is beneath the bomb. And, you know, it's hard for us to sort of, it's, it's easy for us to condemn it, and we should condemn it, but also there's a lot of poverty and corruption that drives people to fish using glass fishing methods um, because it is a lot cheaper than than fishing other ways. And as the quarries decline and fish become more scarce, some people, you know, they need to feed their families, and so they are forced to do this. Mm. Um, but it's pretty rough. And, and I was diving in the Indonesia doing research for this book, and every time I dove, I heard one or two bombs go off. Wow, so it was going on definitely there. Uh, tell yeah. me, tell me what we know that um, you know. Uh, it's uh, just less than one percent uh, of the oceans area, but supports uh, what twenty five percent of uh, biodiversity in in those areas. Supports a lot of other species. 
What happens to to people when uh, when a coral reef uh, corals die off in a in an area? Yeah, we're um, like I said initially. Like, so because so much life lives on the reef, um, people in who live near reefs depend on it for their primary source of protein. And um, and so as the reef starts to decline, you start to see shifts from kind of like a very healthy fish-based low-fat diet to one that is um, more processed and cheaper and less nutritious. And so then you start to see an increase in malnutrition or undernutrition and a, and a rise in diseases in places where we start to decline. Mm. Uh, yeah. Let's take another break, and then definitely we'll get uh, we'll get into some some hopeful things. Uh, a lot of uh, okay, cool. A lot, <laughs> a lot of a lot of things happening. Uh, some interesting solutions. Uh, it's happening right now out there. Um, the book is Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. The author is Julie Burwell. She's with us for the hour. More following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Julie Burwald is with us for the hour. She's author uh, previously of Spineless about jellyfish. Uh, the latest book is Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. That's our subject for the hour. Uh, Julie Burwell, let's get into some hopeful news. I want to start on, on solutions. There's some creative solutions out there. One of the most hopeful was developed, and you can't make this up, right, developed by a candy bar company. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this was one of the most interesting things I found doing the research for this book is um, the Mars Candy Bar Company has um, developed, yeah, the largest, I, I think probably the largest and most successful restoration project in the world. And it is in Indonesia. Um, it is off of this island called Sulawesi, which is a little bit east of Java, um, and it's right in the middle of that coral triangle I kind of keep mentioning, this place where there's a ton of coral diversity and things aren't so bad for the coral yet in terms of climate change or in terms of the water quality going down and causing um, these diseases. But, um, and, and it's, it's just Frank Mars, who is the grandson of the founder of the company, he um, is really interested in the natural world and the health of the natural world and particularly corals. And they have some chocolate factories in Sulawesi. And what they noticed was kind of what we were talking about before the break was the people who traditionally depend on the coral reefs for extra income and for extra sources of, of food, protein, they were struggling because the health of the reefs was declining. And so Frank sort of tasked the head of his factory, who was a diver and was going to kind of go into partial retirement with trying to find ways to restore the coral reefs um, near Sulawesi. And it took about 15 years of research and development, and Mars funded the whole thing. Um, but they came up with a really simple solution, which is any which any built anyone who could build boats could, could, could do this. So it's trans, you know, any place where there are boats, which is all tropical islands, um, it's, it's an easy technology to create. And it's, they call them reef stars. And they're basically um, rebar that's um, got six legs on it. 
and they're kind of angled in this particular way. Um, and they're about the size of if you put your arms in a circle. So something an individual person could manage when they're diving. And they, they've, they coat them in boat resin and then put local sand on them to encourage the coral to grow on these things. And then they have, they pay fishermen, local fishermen, to actually put what are called corals of opportunity, which are like broken fragments of coral, which happens on the reef naturally because of the waves. And when storms come through, they do break some coral pieces off. Um, and so they'll, they'll put, tie those onto these reef stars and they can, then they, um, they replant them into sort of a galaxy and they're networked together with, with um, just uh, zip ties basically and then staked into place. And they put them in these places where the blast fishing has occurred. And those blast fishing scars, like I saw someone that were 30 years old and they don't recover without help. And they, they, they are really, they've learned a lot of details through the years. So they put these restoration projects up against a healthy reef to encourage the local population of fish to migrate onto these restorations. And um, they actually are even playing the sounds of a healthy reef using speakers in the restoration areas, which seems to encourage the correct kind of fish to come out and start living in these new, like these galaxies, these new reef, reef star galaxies made out of rebar. And, and so um, it turns out that within about 18 months, the coral grows so fast and so well with the help of the local populations of fish that kind of nip away at algae, which can, can really overtake a reef quickly. Um, you can hardly see the reef stars, the rebar stars after about 18 months. And three years later, I, I swam over some restorations that looked like they'd been there for a thousand years, like magnificent with turtles kind of bobbing around and sharks and big fish off in the distance and, and just all that diversity of life that a healthy reef um, supports. So it's, it's, it can be done. And, and there's just such a feeling of hope and resilience when you're out on one of these restorations that's really been successful. Um, so yeah, that, that was one of the most wonderful things I saw. You know, I also saw restorations that weren't successful. Um, the funding that Mars had by having sustained funding for, for 15 years, now for almost 20 years, really allowed them to develop the tools to do this. And a lot of nonprofits who are trying to do similar restorations suffer from not having sustained funding. And that's a, and that was a big problem that I discovered was that the, the, um, the financial tools to support coral health are just not in place. And so um, I, I think some, some of these novel ideas, like the one I mentioned about earlier, you know, having reef insurance, those could be um, an important key, an important um, key to supporting coral, health, coral reef health going forward. Uh, and yeah. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask: uh, Can uh, are there organizations or you know places you can recommend where people listening want to help? You know, can can you know can, so, can right. you and I help? It's a little tricky. There's some places in Florida, um, the Coral Reef Foundation, and the um, which does and Moat Marine Lab, which are both doing incredible restoration projects. Um, they're the scale of what they're able to do in the Caribbean 
is less than what they're able to do in Indonesia because it just things just cost more here than they cost in Indonesia. Um, but those foundations are doing really great work and are worth looking into. One thing to keep an eye on is that this is the year, uh, or this is the decade of the ocean for the United Nations. And in Lisbon in July, there's going to be a big ocean meeting. And one of the things that they're trying to get off the ground is this thing called the Global Fund for Coral Reefs. And for the first time, they're looking at trying to raise a half a billion dollars for the health of coral reefs. And so we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Um, but but it's it's really just the beginning for for coral reef um, restoration and health. Mm-hmm. Are there yeah. is there any other uh, innovative uh, solutions out there you'd like to talk about? Yeah. In um, so in the Caribbean, I, I've mentioned like that they've. They've had a lot of problems with diseases, and um, and so in some places the coral are so spread out from each other that they're having trouble making juveniles that can survive. So there's scientists. Um, it turns out the coral spawn, so they release their eggs, their offspring by the light of the moon um, in August, and it's it's the sort of extreme romantic period of time for corals. You know, they can't get up and find a, a, a mate to mate with. So they just all release their spawn um, at the light, with the light of the moon uh, a certain number of days after the full moon and a certain number of hours after sunset. And each species sort of has different timing, which is actually very incredible when you think about it. Um, but there's scientists out there that are collecting the spawn and then fertilizing it in their labs and creating larvae. And their larvae look like little swimming Tic Tacs, but like the size of a grain of rice, just super small. And, and then they're letting those larvae swim down and um, plant themselves on, on um, sort of these, these ceramic, these ceramic uh, shapes that look like, I think, I don't know what they look like. Imagine a tinker toy, um, something like that. So they look like a tinker toy with these arm legs coming out of the bottom of them. And so the larvae will settle on there and then they keep them um, in the lab or sometimes floating out in little boats on the water. Um, and uh, in these, in these kind of big incubation beds, um, the coral, they settle down and they start growing a polyp and they get the algae. They, they acquire the algae from the ocean water. And then they start building their little skeleton and they let them live there until they're big enough that they have some safety from predators who like to eat little things that are, are still really soft and don't have skeletons around them. And then they can replant thousands or hundreds of thousands of baby coral on a reef just by dropping these tinker toys back out there and letting them kind of catch them in nooks and crannies. And so these experiments are going on um, in like the Dominican Republic and Curacao. And, and we'll see, it's kind of, like I said, early days of this, but they are able to create lots and lots and lots of coral babies and hopefully, hopefully repopulate the reef um, that way. And so this is, it's a really exciting opportunity. At the same time, there's, um, scientists who are taking coral larvae and, and baby corals and um, freezing them and putting them in um, frozen banks the same way we have fr- frozen seed banks. 
And then they're taking, um, they're making sperm banks. And so the idea would be you could take sperm from one side of the Caribbean and move it to the other side. And then you could increase genetic diversity that way. So there's a lot of kind of um, reproductive technologies that are happening that are hopefully going to um, improve both the genetic diversity and just the number of individuals of coral that, that are out there on the reef. And then there's one last kind of um, really experimental and exciting um, idea that's happening in the Great Barrier Reef. And the Great Barrier Reef is it's the largest biological structure on our planet. It's 1,400 miles long. You could drape it across the west coast of the United States, and it would drip off into Canada and Mexico. It's huge. And it has been hit by mass bleaching because of these heat waves for the last five years. And so there's an idea to actually cool the ocean when these heat waves are coming toward it. And the idea is called cloud brightening. And so it turns out that marine clouds are less bright than clouds over land. And that's because on land, um, the clouds the, the clouds are made out of water, you know, little water droplets. And those droplets form around a little piece of dust or pollen. Well, there's not very much dust or pollen out over the ocean. <laughs> so what they form around often are um, salt crystals that get lofted upwards when waves break. Um, and so the idea is to add more salt crystals to the clouds over the ocean and make them slightly brighter or more sparkly. You could think of it as adding glitter to the clouds. And then so you're reflecting solar radiation back away from the reef at the time when these heat waves are coming. And you can get a local cooling underneath those brighter clouds of a degree or two, which is just what the coral need to not bleach. And so they demoed this project um, in March of 2020, and it worked really well. They were very impressed with the results, and so the project's gotten a green light to go ahead um, to do more investigation, to not actually brighten the clouds yet, but to have um, an increase in, in the research around it. Like, what would it mean? Would it change rainfall? Could it actually keep the temperature cool over a large swath of the reef? And... Um, and, you know, what are, what are the knock-on effects? They're not going at it without looking at all the other implications, but, but this is a, a pretty big idea um, to actually stop bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. just have about three minutes left. I definitely want to include okay. this. Um, um, you, you parallel the story of, of the reefs. Uh, with a very personal story, the story of your daughter's struggle with mental illness. So uh, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I, I wasn't, that came, um, I was actually invited on that cruise I just talked about to go do the cloud brightening. Um, and at the same time, my daughter was getting very ill with mental health problems. Um, and she had to go into a residential um, hospital and then, of course, COVID hit at the same time, and I um, couldn't go to Australia to, to, to be on that cruise, and actually the whole world shut down. And I realized at that time there were these similarities. You know, the, the coral reef is suffering from these illnesses, these sickness that we don't quite understand, and, and it's so invisible to us up here on land. Similarly, my daughter's struggle with mental health 
it's really, it was really so invisible to so many people. I mean, walking around, you would never know how much she was, how sick she was and how much she was struggling. And I realized that unless we talk about these things, they just fly under our radar. But they're really, really both so foundational to the health of, of, of who we are and who this planet is. I mean, without the coral reefs, you're looking at 250,000 species that will die. Without our mental health, everything else falls away. My daughter lost all her friends. She lost her academic career. You know, she, she, was, she was really frozen. Um, and so I, it seemed that this two stories became so intertwined. I, I couldn't write about one without the other. And I sent some of it, this writing to my editor at this moment when everything seemed to be collapsing. And she said, you know, this is some of your strongest and most powerful writing. And let's see if we can make it work to bring these stories together in this book. And, um, and that's what ended up happening. And I hope that the two stories amplify each other. Yeah. Very interesting that, uh, you know, you, you take some lessons parallel back and forth. Right. But, um, one of the ones that struck me was, uh, your, your family, uh, had to decide to, you know, total commitment, total commitment to a, to a long process, right, uh, with, with right. your daughter. Similarly, I guess, with, with uh, Coral Reefs. That's right. That's one of the big things is initially, you know, we were looking for a simple answer to her struggles, like a pill or changing her diet or something. And it turns out that what really needed to change was her behavior. She had to develop these behaviors, um, this behavioral therapy, where she had to changed the way she responded to the triggers in the outside world. And similarly, you know, there aren't similar, simple answers for the coral reefs. It's going to really take us changing our behaviors in terms of how we deal with climate change, largely, um, to, to solve this problem. And, and, um, but we can do it. You know, we know we have a lot of tools at our disposal. And that's what we discovered with the mental health issue also, there were a lot of tools. We just had to learn them. Well, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, the uh, The book is Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. is out and available now. Julie Burwald is the author, and uh, you can find her at her website, uh, julieburwald.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for the great conversation. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.